small hill overlooking Jerusalem. And again, there's this cry that comes out from him when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. Thanks, Grant. I forgot earlier today I should have done it. Thank you. And then in Gethsemane, you see it again, where his anguish has him sweat blood. And so it's that kind of prayer we're talking about. It's not lament. It comes out of reverence for God. It's still fervent and filled with passion and faith, but, but it's accompanied by sometimes crying, sometimes tears, sometimes fasting, sometimes bended knee. I mean, imagine Elijah on Mount Carmel. Eh? That's what he's doing there. He's rolled up in almost this fetal position, and he's calling out to God because God had said something would happen. I felt bad for Elijah's servant. eh? He had to go up and down that mountain seven times. And yet Elijah is on his knees crying out to God. And so that's sometimes a kind of prayer that we need to practice. And it's not faithless. It's full of faith. It's not harassment. It's just this calling out to God because of the anguish or the distress of your soul. Um, You must have seen that um, report on TV yesterday where two uh, where a pair of twins were killed at the Calgary Olympic thingy. Um, really amazing boys. Eh? They, um, we have a pastor in Vernon who, who's, um, who's related to them. And he was, his wife was telling me yesterday about how the family is on one hand um, crushed by what has happened, and yet out of them is arising prayers that are full of distress and yet praise. Eh? Remember to pray for them. They're believers. Uh, they can't understand how their kids ended up on that slope. But both boys were believers too. So just remember to pray for them. Yeah. Well, that's on the side. Guys, so know that uh, sometimes we need to express our prayers with this appeal and cry. And fasting is part of that, eh? There might be many different reasons for fasting, but one of the reasons that perhaps we don't remember is that fasting, again, is about letting God know that we like him above all else. That's one part that's often forgotten in the process of fasting. And imagine this. Imagine that I had two tickets. Uh, I, had, I had a ticket to the Stanley Cup finals. And guess what? Vancouver is in it again. And so <laughs> I went for the game last night. It was horrible. So all these kinds of prayers would have to work to get the Canucks into the Stanley Cup finals, but that's a different story. So let's assume that I had a ticket to the Stanley Cup finals, and uh, I decide to give it to George. So I give it to George, and it happens to fall on a Monday, and Monday is the only day off, really, in the week for him, and that's the day he normally spends with Judy. But he decides... Uh, he, he gets his ticket and he says, Judy, I've got this ticket, I've got this ticket. And she says to him, uh, you should go. And he says, no, but on Mondays I normally spend time with you. She says, no, nope, I know how much you love hockey and this is the Stanley Cup finals, so just go. And so he grabs the ticket and he's driving to uh, Rogers and halfway through he just stops, eh? And he calls a friend of his and gives the ticket away to the friend and turns and comes home and knocks on the door And Judy says, what's wrong with you? You love hockey, what are you doing here? And he responds by saying, I really love hockey, but I like you more. (laughs) 
And now Judy and George sit together and they begin to talk about their dreams, their past, their hopes, their intent. And there's such a deep connect because even though he loves hockey, he likes her more. And all fasting at the end of the day, at least for New Testament Christians, must boil down to that fact. And if it doesn't, it somehow lacks something. And therefore, when I choose to not watch CSI or Downtown, Downtown Abbey or whatever that thing is, which I've never watched in my life, um, <laughs> and perhaps should, uh, I, I'm saying to God that, Father, I really love watching CSI, but I like you more. Father, I really like eating dinner because it's my favorite meal of the day, but I like you more. And out of that comes this connect that allows me to relate to the Father at a level that I normally don't relate. Again, supplication comes out of this place where it's a crying out to God who you revere and acknowledge as a good Father. It isn't an attempt to make him do things which is often what happens when we begin to cry and fast. And let's assume we run out of words in terms of supplication. There's this beautiful words in Romans 8, 26, which says that the Spirit of God allows us or, or translates our groans and moans before God. Just imagine that, eh? When you and I run out of words, it says the Spirit meets our supplication with unspeakable groanings too deep for utterance. Enjoy it, guys, because the Father crafted these ways of praying so that we connect with him, eh? Every now and then, engage in these things. There's just one caveat, which is in Matthew eleven twenty-five. Regardless of the kind of prayer I pray, I must first forgive. When, whenever you stand praying, Jesus said, if you, Jacob, have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And sometimes in churches it is so easy, eh? Where we unfortunately do each other harm because we are not perfect yet. Where pastors can treat the congregation badly, the congregation can affect the pastor badly. And so there are these raw wounds that are left. And remember, Jesus always said, look at my scabs. Nope, he didn't say look at my scabs. He said, look at my scars. I can never minister freedom to someone I'm in bondage to. And therefore, it's necessary that I first forgive you before I can pray for you. And that's such an important part of praying. Eh? And it doesn't matter what kind of prayer we're talking about. Vital. So that's earnest supplication, where it may express itself in tears, fasting, bended knee, and sometimes blood, as with Jesus. The next kind of prayer is revelatory prayer, revelatory prayer, prayer, which we often don't talk about in Baptist circles, but which is real, because if, if it's in the Bible, then it's Baptist, right? Praise God. So it's revelatory prayer, and that is when um, God shows you situations and circumstances and how he wants you to deal with it, and he expects you now to voice his will into that situation. It's another word for revelatory prayer, which is perhaps a little more frightening, is prophetic prayer. Prophetic prayer. 
where it reveals and then prepares the way for what God wants to establish. It reveals and then prepares the way for what God wants to establish. Uh, Let's look at some examples in the Bible. Elijah. So he goes and says to all of Israel, listen, there will not be any rain for the next three years. And there was no rain. So it reveals what, what God wants to do. It establishes it. And then at some point he goes and says, well, just want to let you know that it's going to rain like crazy, so you better get into your chariot and head for Jezreel. The Bible's full of revelatory prayer, eh? Again and again it happens. Where God uses ordinary people like you and I as mouthpieces to show us a situation, speak what he's going to do, establish it, and it's amazing the results that transpire after that. So prophetic prayers are spoken in the natural. They affect the spiritual. And eventually you see the result in the physical. Let me say that again. Prophetic prayers are spoken in the natural. Elijah said there will not be any rain. Somewhere in the spiritual, in the realm that we don't know much about, things happen. Normal cloud patterns were undone. There was no rain. Baal was undone. The prophets of Baal were slaughtered. All because one ordinary human being, because we heard that being read this morning, said there will be no rain. That's all it took. Guys, if it happened in the Old Testament, surely we have a better covenant. And so this would involve that we hear and sometimes, oh, I'll take Ezekiel 37. Isn't that a brilliant chapter? So Ezekiel is taken into a valley. He's shown a vision in which he's in a valley full of bones. And God says, so Ezekiel, what do you think? Bones going to live. And he's, he, Ezekiel was a smart guy. He says, only you know, O Lord. That's such a safe answer, eh? And so he says, only you know, O Lord. And so God says, okay, begin to prophesy. Speak Speak to these bones. And he begins to speak, and the bones come together. Flesh, sinew, muscles come on the bones. And yet, that isn't good enough. And so God says, now begin to prophesy. Speak to the breath and say from the north, south, east, and west, begin to blow on these bones. And the wind begins to blow, and the bones begin to live. Perhaps every now and then, when you sense that God is asking you to speak into, into a situation, his will, which will always match his word, sometimes dare to do that because it uncaps or births or stirs up a God-crafted plan. Isn't this what Ananias did for Paul when he goes up to Paul, even though he's dead scared, and says to Paul, listen, Jesus Christ has sent me to give you back your sight and to send you as an emissary to the rest of the world. And scales fall off Paul's eyes. Paul does the same thing for Timothy, where Paul goes up to Timothy and says, uh, he writes to Timothy saying, do you remember when you were, um, when, when the elders laid hands on you and it was prophetically spoken and gifts were stirred up within you? Paul does that to Timothy. So it's not an Old Testament practice. It's practiced in the New Testament too. Uh, um, I was in Indonesia a month and a half ago, and someone got us to meet this guy called Basuki, who's the governor of Jakarta. He used to be 
the assistant to the, uh, to the present president of Indonesia. And so uh, someone just got us into his office. We waited there for a while, and finally he came. And he's a, uh, he's a Presbyterian. And th there's a lot of opposition against him because he's the first Christian governor of the largest um, province in Indonesia. And uh, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And so every day there are people who pro uh, get together outside the governor's uh, office in protest. And so he comes and he, he, he's an honest man, so he brings a video camera to shoot videos of any meetings he has. So he uh, looks at me and he says, so what do you want? Because usually people come there to meet him because they want something. And I say, I don't want anything. Uh, this meeting was set up, just felt that the Lord had something to say to you, so all I want to do is say to you and then leave. And he was a little surprised, so he switched the video cameras off, and then the previous night, I'd been, I'd been asking God, saying, so Father, what do you want to say to this man? Why are you sending me there? I don't know him. And whatever I sensed God saying, wrote it down on my phone, basically read it out, and uh, then prayed for him. And many of the things that were read out were things that I didn't know about him that I sensed God saying. And then last week, uh, I know it's too small to see, last week he sent back an email, his assistant sent back an email saying how many of the things that were spoken one and a half years ago, are beginning, uh, one and a half months ago, are beginning to come to pass. And he sent a newspaper cutting to show what had happened. And I'm blown away thinking, really, Father? That was such a simple prayer, and you made, began to make things happen, where now in the newspaper called the Jakarta Globe, some of the things that were spoken over him have begun to happen, and that's why he sent it. Ordinary people like you and I can be used for this, guys. And it blows people away because there's no way you and I would know such things. But perhaps one of the things God wants us to do is attempt praying for small things first, before he finds us faithful and puts us into situations that are way beyond us. I remember being in South Africa and uh, was in a worship conference and really fabulous worship leaders, eh? guys who brought out seven or eight CDs. And I'm sitting there and I feel the Lord saying, I need you to go up and sing. And uh, I'll give you the words when you go up there. And I'm saying, no way. Because one, these guys are really good. Two, um, I know that God doesn't rhyme, so when we sing grace rhymes with face and tears rhyme with fears and stuff like that, and I know God isn't into rhyme, so I'm going to look really stupid if I go up there. And so I, I just feel God saying, go up, go up, go up. And so finally I go up on stage when there's a gap between songs, and I shut my eyes, because usually worship leaders shut their eyes when they're scared of the congregation. So I shut my eyes because I didn't want to look at anybody because it freaked me out. And so I've, got, I've shut my eyes and now I start singing. And I sing words that um, are so clumsy, so not rhyming, so pathetic that I think to myself, Father, this is the last time I'm going to do this. Because it's in a strange new church, right? And I finish and I go back and nobody says I did a good job. Like, even the friend who invited me didn't pat me on my back or anything. And I'm thinking to myself, never again. This was it. And uh, I go sit down, uh, and I thought perhaps after the service is over, someone will come and say something nice. Nobody comes and says nothing nice. And so I go home, and I try to erase that whole thing out of my mind because it really begins to bother me. Um, I come back to Vancouver, 
And there's this um, South African lady called Cecilia. And she writes and sends me an email. I still have it on the phone. And it says, uh, you may not remember me, but you were there at the worship conference. And uh, this guy called Merv was leading amazing worship. And then she writes, and then you went up. And sometimes South Africans can be way too direct. And so, and she says, you went up and you started singing. And you sang in a monotone. And I sat there thinking, why doesn't he go sit down? But you just kept on singing. And she said, at some point, I started listening to the words. And she said, your words had nothing to do with anything that was happening to me or that I was going through. But you kept singing about the Father's love. And as, you, as I listened to the words, I felt like God caught me, pushed me into deep, clean water, and pulled me out. And she said, I've had clinical depression for the last 10 years. And for the first time in my life, I'm free from depression. And I haven't even had to take medications for the last month and a half. And I'm fine. And I'm thinking, I mean, what I did was pretty bad. I sang badly. My words were clumsy. I did a bad job. Regretted doing it. Thought I'll never do it. Was an imperfect, defective vessel. And yet, through all that, God accomplished something. I saw her. Yeah, it's worth it, man. It's worth applauding him for what he did. I went and saw her. I, I was in the same church in South Africa on, in October. And it's been a year and four months now. And she's still perfectly all right. She's a lawyer there. Works under very difficult circumstances given the changes that have happened there. And she's free of depression. Guys, sometimes all we are supposed to be is a mouthpiece that dares to be foolish. Dares to be foolish. The odd thing about the Holy Spirit is we can ask for an infilling of the Holy Spirit, but there has to be an outflow for an inflow, and the inflow is always provoked by foolishness. We can ask for an inflow of the Holy Spirit, but it requires an outflow. And an inflow of the Holy Spirit is only provoked when we are foolish, unfortunately. Any person in Hebrews chapter 11 was ridiculously foolish. And prayer involves a little bit of foolishness. And that's why perhaps we need to be encouraged to um, pray for things beyond our present ability. The next um, kind of prayer is cooperative prayer. Another word for it would be praying in agreement. Cooperative prayer, praying in agreement. Um, we practice this quite often, and you can hear us often praying, saying, Father, we come together in agreement. Uh, the thing, though, is the first person I need to agree with is God. Sometimes what happens to us is we begin to agree with each other first and then go to God. And really, Matthew 18, 19, where it says, Wherever, whatever two or three of you agree on, I will do it for you, is based first on the premise that I'm praying according to the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. If I pray according to the will of God, he hears me. And if he hears me, I know that I have as my present possession what I've asked of him. 
So I'm supposed to empathize with people that I'm praying for, but I'm supposed to agree with God first and then people. So what, Amos chapter 3, verse 3 puts it so brilliantly. It says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And so I need to agree with God first. Empathy towards people, agreement with God. And so sometimes at uh, the church I'm at, we've had to uh, put down on a board what we are agreeing about. Because I remember when I, when I went to Regent, uh, one afternoon when the prof, professor came in to teach, he had a bad uh, cough and he could hardly speak. So as good Regent students, we decided to pray for him. And we came in agreement. And then as people began to pray, we found a strange thing. There were some who were praying for his cough, saying, it is the will of God um, for him, and may he go through it and come out of it. Someone else prayed that this is the devil, and so they started rebuking the devil. Someone else prayed, this uh, is God's uh, way of teaching the professor something that he needs to learn. And then someone else prayed, whatever your will may it be done. Now, there were four different prayers that came from four different angles, and may I suggest to you they weren't exactly in agreement? And sometimes that's what happens when, in prayers of agreement in churches. So sometimes it's good to first agree with God and say, okay, this is what God says about the situation, so let's pray based on this. And then it's covenantal and it scatters the enemy. Leviticus 26, 8 says that five can chase a hundred, a hundred can chase a thousand. Then it becomes covenantal because you're agreeing with God. He's beginning to walk with you. So maybe keep that in mind when we pray together as a church, that perhaps we need to establish what we agree on. Hmm, We're doing quite well today. (laughs) Uh, The next type of prayer is expectant prayer. Expectant prayer. Expectant prayer. Uh, Expectant prayer is our prayers of faith that demonstrate expectancy. Prayers of faith that demonstrate expectancy. And circumstances don't faze you at all. It's Habakkuk 3, 18 and 19, or 17 to 19. Though the fig trees have not blossomed, though there be no cattle in the stall, though the olive trees have dropped their fruit, yet I will trust in you, O God, and I'll do cartwheels of joy while I wait in expectancy for what you're going to do. Prayers of faith that demonstrate expectancy. This is when you've decided that this is what God is saying or this is what God is showing me and what you see is what you believe. What you believe is what you begin to speak and what you speak is what you begin to do. It's a beautiful transition. eh? First I begin to see what God is saying and what I see becomes the very core of my belief. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. Now I begin to believe what I have seen in the word of God with regard to my situation or circumstance. What I see is what I believe. What I believe is what I begin to speak. As in, I know this is my situation, but this is what the word of God says, so I think I'll trust God than Google. And what I speak is what I begin to do. Guys, if doubt is the opposer of faith then self-reliance is the substitute for faith. Fear torments faith, but here's something we often miss out on. Low expectancy hollows faith out. Low expectancy 
hollows faith out. It, 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 it's like this knife that goes into faith and just hollows it out. Because our expectancy is so low that it's easily attainable. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is there anything that you are attempting at present in your personal life that is beyond your finances, beyond your ability, beyond your strength and resources, and that is literally impossible? And then we need to ask the next question. Father, what is it as a church that we are attempting that is beyond our budget, beyond our resources, beyond our ability, beyond our manpower, and that is so impossible that we'll have to depend on you? Because otherwise, expectancy stays here, and it's easily attainable, because if God doesn't work, at least our budget will work. What is it in my life that I presently am engaging in that is way beyond me, where it's impossible? So every year, I try to pick on two or three things that God agrees with that I can attempt that are not in my ability to do. And every year as a church, we are trying to take on projects that we don't have the money for or the manpower for or the ability to do. Because then you are forced almost to depend on God. It's a frightening, wonderful place to be. And it always ends up with God showing his mighty right arm. And uh, very few are able to take credit because only he could have pulled it off. And so may, may we demonstrate expectancy even before things happen. I mean, mums do it. They paint the room pink if it's a girl. Uh, they buy um, those thingies you push kids in. <laughs> Shows how... Well, I'm uh, doing with that. Um, uh, uh, you take an umbrella when you think it's going to rain. And you don't mind carrying it around when it doesn't rain. Why? Because you expect something and you prepare for it. Maybe demonstrate expectancy, eh? It's a wonderful way to live. But because you know, you're so sure that God's going to do something, you're willing to. I remember once uh, being in a job where the guy hadn't given me a promotion for years or a raise in pay. And so um, I, I decided I'd go ask him uh, for a raise. But before I did, th that night I was in church and I decided I'd tithe, not on the salary I was getting, but on the salary I expected to get. And so when the offering bag came around, I tithed on what I was going to get. And um, then I went to meet my boss and um, I'd asked the church to pray anyways that uh, changes happen. Went to meet my boss, and he was a Muslim. Um, and um, the scripture that we had claimed in church as we prayed was that God will bless the work of my hands, that he'll give me um, a surplus, that he'll place me as the head and not the tail. And so I go to my boss, and he uh, says, uh, I don't have time right now. And then at some point, he says, I need you to come with me for a meeting. So I'm traveling with him in the car, and these are the words he says to me. He says, Jacob, I just want you to know that um, I was just reminded that I haven't given you a raise for uh, quite a while. I, I, this is before I could ask him, eh? and, and he's a Muslim, and he quotes Deuteronomy 28, and he says, I just want you to know that you were my first employee, and I'll always place you above and not below. Uh, you'll always be at the head and not the tail. And I'm scratching my head thinking, how did he read that scripture? 
And then he goes, uh, once we get back from the meeting, go to the accountant and tell him that uh, um, this is a raise that he should give you this month. And then I was half wishing I had tithed more. But <laughs> the, the point is, sometimes we have to demonstrate our expectancy, guys. And uh, God really values that. Because what are we saying when we do that? We are saying, Father, I trust you. I mean, th- there's this principle of first fruits in the Bible, which was brilliant. Every farmer at the beginning of the crop, of the harvest, would bring the very first fruit and offer it to God. And he had no idea whether there would be a drought or whether there would be locusts and stuff like that. But he'd bring first fruits to God and say, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but here, I want to give you the first of everything. And God would respond saying, because you have trusted me, even though you don't know what will happen in the future, let me now bless the root increase the fruit, and rebuke the devourer. That's what happens with demonstration. Let's move on to another one. The next uh, kind of prayer is declaration. Declaration. And declarative prayers are basically prayers that we speak because God has already said so in the Bible. Declarative prayers are prayers that are spoken because God has already said so in the Bible. There's a strange thing you'll notice in most of the New Testament, that when it comes to healing, for instance, there's almost never a time when anybody prayed that people be healed. They always declared healing. I mean, you might find maybe one instance when it wasn't so. Otherwise, it doesn't matter who Jesus healed, who Peter healed, who Paul healed. It was always be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. There was never a prayer for healing. It was this declaration based on the fact that Jesus had said, you'd go and do this, this, and that. I mean, I've been looking for a scripture that would show me a place where it says, and they went to the Lord and asked him. But it always seems to be declarative. So there are certain things in the Bible that God has granted, in which case it is now left to us to begin to speak it. I mean, you don't ask a thief to leave your house. You don't say, and please, if you will, could you put that down and just exit? Exit. You don't say, you say in the name of whatever, leave. A declaration is like a legal writ that you issue because it has already been said so by he who governs the universe. And more and more you'll find that happening in the New Testament where people knew what Jesus had done. I love that line in that song. The cross is enough. It is finished. And so there are certain things that are given to us that we're meant to declare. I know these are so many different kinds of prayer, but perhaps it's time we... Uh, guys, this story will blow your mind, and I, I perhaps will end with this. Um, yeah, I might as well tell you the story. This was about two years ago, November 2014. Um, and you can verify this. That's why I'm telling you the story. So we, our drummer, um, uh, ch- church was about to begin. When I walked into church, he was uh, sweeping the sidewalk and uh, just clearing the leaves and stuff like that. And so we're about to begin, and the drummer is not uh, present. And so I'm looking for him and can't see him, and suddenly someone from the street comes running in and says, uh, there's a man lying outside, there's a man lying outside. And so we go, and we see the drummer on this sidewalk, uh, bleeding and uh, not moving. And at that point, we had two nurses and a fireman uh, in the church, and they rushed because they knew how to deal with it. 
and they picked him up and he's not breathing. And uh, someone called 911 while the nurses tried to help him and nothing, man, like two minutes go by, three minutes go by and uh, this girl called Heidi who's in church looked up and said mm, that uh, he's gone because there was no movement, there was no breath and his wife and son are screaming and I'm thinking to myself, Father, what do you do in a circumstance like this? And all I could remember was this, I don't know where this sentence came from, that this is a place of life, that Christ is life, and he can overcome anything. So I ran into the church and I told the church, listen, start declaring life, not praying for life, but declaring life, that this is a place of life, that Jesus Christ is life, and that we begin to speak life back into this man. And then I called a few of the leaders in the church and we gathered around him. This is on Main and 50th. There were others watching. And we started speaking life. Just declaring life. Took about a minute and a half, guys. And by now it was three and a half minutes into this man lying um, motionless without breathing. And suddenly he sits up and he says, uh, starts screaming, I thought I was dead, but I'm alive. I thought I was dead, but I'm alive. And then he looks around and sees his wife, Lorian, and he grabs her and begins to cry like a baby. And we are watching this stunned, eh? Now, even as I tell you the story, you're saying, there must be some other explanation. Perhaps there is, but there could be one other explanation. That God has the power to do anything he wants. And I am so grateful that we still have a drummer but we banned him from sweeping the sidewalk forever. <laughs> I mean, there were so many witnesses to this, which is why I'm willing to share it, and it happened right in our neighborhood, so it's not like uh, this can't be verified. But declarative prayers have power. They declare what God desires, and it's already established in the Word. I won't go into the next two because we've run out of time, but the next two prayers are... Uh, uh, E for exaltation, and that's prayers of thanksgiving, eh? Prayers of thanksgiving. Whenever you're stuck in a fish, begin to give thanks, and the fish will vomit you out. (laughs) Jonah did that, eh? He's just covered in seaweed, and he's looking all green, and he begins to pray, and then he begins to praise, and as he praises, the fish comes to the shore and pukes him out. Thanksgiving prayers... Paul and Silas did that too. Stuck in handcuffs and stocks, they start praying and things begin to fall off. Jehoshaphat did it, surrounded by an enemy, and he begins to pray and praise and send his singers out front, and the enemy ambushes each other. And he reaps the spoils of not war, but praise. So exaltation is a prayer that's really effective. And the last one is... um, Praying in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, where um, Paul says, I pray in Greek and I pray in tongues. Now, I realize that that may not be a common Baptist experience, but it's in the Bible and therefore it's Baptist. So if you're someone who speaks in tongues, occasionally start praying in tongues. But in your own private time, not publicly, because it helps nobody helps nobody, because if I start speaking in my mother tongue right now, uh, you won't understand. But um, praying in tongues is another way of praying where it bypasses your mind and therefore prays directly to God 
and praise according to the will of God. So if that is a gift that some of us have, then we can exert that too. But these are the different types of prayer that we can engage in. How do they work? In tandem or sometimes one after the other or dovetailing into each other. At the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us to wield the sword of the Spirit. And may, maybe use these different types of prayers this year, eh? And thank you for being attentive. Bless you.